Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I think part of the job of being a coach is actually getting people away from all of the shoulds and towards reading and interpreting the signs from their own bodies, which are the truest things that you're ever going to get. So forget about the research literature. Forget about some guy on the internet. Your body is saying yes or no to this food that you're eating. And that's the most honest thing. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Krista Dixon-Scott. She was the director of curriculum at Precision Nutrition, one of the largest and most respected private nutrition coaching and education companies in the world. She's the author of several books, including Why Me Want Eat, and the co-author of The Essentials of Nutrition Coaching for Health, Fitness, and Sports textbook. She currently is the product director at Simple, a nutrition app with global reach responsible for designing evidence-based nutrition and health behavior changes. We discussed how to thrive through listening to your body, along with Dr. Scott's eating routine, how to establish a baseline for calories, her principles of a healthy diet, the importance of circadian rhythm eating, and her one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Scott. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Krista Scott Dixon on. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I should say Dr. Krista Scott Dixon. <laughs> but just to be clear, not a medical doctor. I cannot do your open heart surgery just to, <laughs> to head off any requests there. Yeah. You earned your doctorate in women's studies from York University, I see. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's funny because people always said that's a useless degree, but uh, <laughs> we just, given that uh, I just helped co-author a textbook on menopause and before that, a textbook on mm. postpartum coaching, pregnancy and postpartum coaching, uh, it, you know, it really hasn't uh, been all that useless, I will say. Oh, no. and you know, you hear women's studies, that sounds so broad. Is it is, is like, what does that entail? I'm just curious. Like, is that yeah. No, I mean, it's it's a great question. I hear the hesitation there, but it's okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings. So, <laughs> I mean, basically, it's it's looking at women's experiences across anything you want, right? And so it's one of those degrees that combines really well with other areas of interest. And so when I was doing my PhD, I was really interested in um, women's work and women's employment, women's health. I did a lot of stuff around women's health especially in the workplace. Um, one of my, before we got on, we were talking about academic books. One of my academic books that is probably of no interest to readers, but actually was sort of valuable during the pandemic was women's work in healthcare, especially in occupations like cleaners, where, you know, they're not really visible, but they're so, so critical. So that was sort of my specialty mm. early on. You know, there was always kind of an interest in health, but yeah, I mean, the great thing about women's studies, is you can combine it with anything else you're interested in. Uh, and lots of people did. And then we were just talking as well about precision, precision nutrition. And you said you're, uh, that I was just, I did your PNL one certification, um, sports and exercise nutrition. Uh, and you were with them for what, 13 years, you said? Yeah. 14, 14, 14. almost 15. It's, oh. it's hard to believe, but, I, and, and, 
I knew I knew John and Phil, the two co-founders of PN from before that. I actually met Phil in 2000, just when he was back as a university undergrad, mm. who, who knew that he would have become a rock star CEO. <laughs> yeah, is it, I, I, I think that's, isn't it one of the biggest um, certification, you know, companies out there? It's got to be up there, I'd imagine. Certainly for nutrition coaching. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I have your, your, your textbook right here. Mm-hmm. Big, big. I will say one thing I like because I've done different certifications is it, it's nice. I like having the textbook. Like now everything is online and it's it can be great from one sense, but in another sense, I like to have like an actual book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People do and yeah. people did. And this was always a debate that we used to have at PN. Like, should we continue to produce a physical book? Because obviously it's costly, sure. it's heavy. I think the thing weighs like five pounds, it costs money to ship, right? But right. there's something about a physical book that I think is really powerful for helping people learn. So I was always on team book. <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, what would you say? I mean, obviously, almost fifteen years. Maybe it might be a broad question, but what what are some of maybe the high level things that you've learned through the through your time with them that, or maybe some things that maybe you changed your opinion on as far as like nutrition and health is concerned uh, through those years? Oh, that's a that's a really great question, and it's very salient because I actually just presented. Um, a little bit of uh, of this topic. I, I was just speaking at the Coaches Congress in Stockholm about one of the topics was deep health. Um, and I was telling the story about how we changed our approach at Precision Nutrition and how when we started, let's say in 2006 or so, a lot of us had come from bodybuilding and sports nutrition. And you know a lot of people were interested in physique and like that kind of stuff. And so in the early 2000s, uh, we thought that our job was providing nutrition information, specifically sports nutrition information, or like old school bodybuilding nutrition information to people in a very prescriptive way, like eat so much of this and so much of that and that kind of stuff. And over the years, we really came to realize after we saw literally tens of thousands of clients, and I mean, I've coached thousands just myself, like it's not about any of that. Like none of that (laughs) is in any way helpful for actual people who are trying to just be healthy or get fit or get lean or get muscular or whatever it is they want to do in their daily lives. And so we really shifted our focus a lot to thinking a lot more about behavior change. And then this concept we call deep health, which is looking at people's whole lives. And I mean, I literally just posted something uh, to Instagram yesterday, which was a chart that I used in my presentation, which was like, it's just a pie graph. It was like 90% Mm. not about food. 10% 10% about food. I saw that. And I mean, completely unscientific. <laughs> I just sort of <laughs> made up those numbers. But, you know, by and large, I think the thing we really came to appreciate is people's uh, habits, healthy behaviors, whatever, are so much about how they live their lives, whether that's their relationships, the environment they're in, their belief system, uh, what they've learned, their emotions, their ability to self-regulate, like all of this stuff very, very little to do with Mm. specific portions, specific nutrients. And so this is, I think, somewhere that the fitness industry really often goes wrong because we think that to solve people's problems means telling them, oh, eat this many grams of protein when it really has nothing to do with that at all. Right. I I do notice that a little bit because I coach a lot of like middle-aged men and a lot of times people just want like a certain template to, to follow. But a lot, but I feel like there's a, it's a lot deeper than that. Like, yes. and <laughs> it's more than, like you said, just about the food at, you know, the stress, you know, the sleep, um, 
uh, even, you know, just activity, but also just like the mentality of how they perceive themselves. Yes. Um, you know, I've, I've had, had just one client in particular, like he, he kept sort of jokingly calling himself like the fat guy, <laughs> like, like that was like sort of his, but if he told him, he tells him, if he told himself this over and over and over again, and for the last 30 years, you know, what does that do to your sort of mentality about yourself? And so I, yeah, I agree with you. It, it, 10% food, I, I don't know, I would maybe say, I would maybe say a little bit more, but I, I think, yes, there's a lot more to go into it than just that. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I think, I mean, it's it's absolutely fair to say that nutrition does matter. <laughs> I don't want no. anyone to take that away from this conversation. And certainly correcting nutritional deficiencies helps a lot. Like, for example, um, I worked with a lot of women who were way under eating protein. Mm. And then when we boosted their protein intake, all of a sudden they feel better. Because they're actually making neurotransmitters. They're actually making stuff that their body's using to survive, mm-hmm. right? And so they're like, gosh, I have so much more energy and my mood is so much better. And I just, you know, I'm recovering better. So, I mean, it's definitely the case that getting people to eat better in a very basic, like fundamental way. And that was another thing we got really big on at PN was the fundamentals, like just hammering the fundamentals over and over and over and over. Because even with our elite athletes, by and large, the fundamentals were what they needed. They needed to eat their vegetables and get their sleep and drink their water and all that, you know, boring stuff. So, I mean, nutrition is certainly important and we can definitely make people feel a lot better when we get them eating better. I mean, that's for sure the case. It's just the methods we might go about doing that are not to just like hand them a meal plan and be like, eat this, don't eat that. Right. And and I heard you talk on another podcast about how, and I think this is a great point of how highly adaptable individuals are. And maybe touch on that a little bit. I thought that was really interesting when you started talking about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because I I feel like some of the conversations around human bodies now are so rigid, like this is the best way to eat and you should never do that. You should never sleep uh, with any light around or the optimal temperature to do anything is blah, 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 right? Like it's some very highly constrained set of conditions But like, if you look around, humans did not become the dominant species on the planet by being a bunch of like, you know, divas (laughs) could only operate in a very limited range. I mean, we can operate anywhere from minus 40 to plus 40, right? And and Uh eat anything and um, pretty much have sex with anything humanoid. (laughs) So like, we really are highly adaptable and resilient. And I often feel like that point gets lost in these prescriptive kind of fitness, wellness, health ideas. And people start freaking out and getting paranoid, like, oh, my God, if I'm not doing it this specific way, then something terrible is going to happen to me. But humans are very tough. And again, it's not like I'm not arguing that it's okay to live on Pop-Tarts and Jack Daniels for the rest of your life. But it really is remarkable how human beings do adapt and how resilient they are. And and how um, our bodies can adapt really quite rapidly to changes in food and changes in environment and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I always want to root for the story of human resilience and human adaptability, which I think just isn't emphasized quite as much. I mean, yeah, there's rules of physiology, right? Everyone needs a certain baseline of protein intake that we just can't negotiate with that. Everyone needs water. Everyone needs minerals. Like there's certain things human beings need. But above and beyond those basics, there's so much uh, incredible variety that's really possible for human beings. And I think that's 
kind of a cool narrative. Yeah, because you know nowadays I feel like, especially just having a podcast and different guests. You know, I just interviewed. It's not published yet. Sally Norton, and we talked about um, these toxic these toxic superfoods like these oxalates that are in um, you know certain foods more than others. Obviously, vegetables like um, spinach, uh, Swiss chard, uh, beet greens, um, even chocolate. And you know, she had a real issue. You know, her 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 journey, her health journey, was one of where she finally figured it out that these these you know she was like overloading in oxalates. <laughs> you know, having a uh, spinach smoothie every day might not be the best for you know for some people, and and it sort of hit her the hardest. And so, you hear one message: avoid oxalates, and then you'll have someone else come on who's like thriving on <laughs> like a vegetarian approach. You know, so I think. Uh, it can be confusing for just individuals nowadays because there are so many options. It's almost like when you go to the store now, I sort of laugh about it. You can walk down like any aisle and there's 50 options for like nut butters. And it's like, what, what am I doing and what can I eat? Um, so I don't know. I, what, what's your thought on that? And um, how did you try to portray that? Obviously through working with precision nutrition. Yeah, we always used to call ourselves diet agnostic. And what we meant by that is that we recognize that people can do quite well on a whole variety of diets. And there are so many factors that go into what makes the best diet. In fact, if you Google precision nutrition, what is the best diet, you'll see that we've written and, and talked mm -hmm. about this quite a lot. And so there's obviously um, physiological factors that go into food choices. So for example, um, as I age, I've become less and less able to tolerate certain kinds of foods, right? My body's just like, nope, we're not doing that anymore. So like, okay, <laughs> I guess, you know, part of my best diet is what I can actually tolerate. Um, but then there's also things like food preferences, religious and cultural beliefs and practices, uh, what you can access, what you can afford, what's in season for you. Um, you know, thinking about sustainability, like, should I reasonably expect that in Canada, I'm getting mangoes in January. Like, is that realistic? Is that, you know, is this, is this costing the yeah. ecosystem something to provide? So, you know, there's so many factors that go into what is the best diet and there's huge human variation too, right? And so we know that there are significant differences with particular ethnic populations uh, in terms of like genetic, uh, like lactase persistence is a good one, right? So the ability to digest dairy products as an adult. I just got back from Sweden, like I said, where everything <laughs> was milk-based, which like between milk and wheat, the two foods I can't do, right? Like mm -hmm. Sweden's all about that. Right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to start to death here. But it's because they have a really high rate of lactase persistence genes in this population, right? right. So, I mean, I, I think we want to kind of take it back to really simple things, which is just to say, how do you feel? How do you function? How do you perform? How do you recover? And get people kind of becoming experts of themselves and not in the weird biohacking way, not in the way where they're like monitoring every a drop of spit and pee and fluid, <laughs> like whatever, yeah. right? But just in like very basic ways. How am I feeling right now? How's my energy level? Is it sustained? Is it kind of a, a, a rise and a crash? Do I sleep well? Am I recovering well? Do I have, you know, how much soreness do I have after training? Like, all these kinds of things. And when you bring it down to these simple questions, a lot of the answers get really obvious to people. You know, they're like, well, 
I'm supposed to be eating this, but it upsets my stomach. Okay. (laughs) 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 This seems like a very obvious, uh, you know, problem to solve. So I think part of the job of being a coach is actually getting people away from all of the shoulds and towards reading and interpreting the science from their own bodies, which are the truest things that you're ever going to get. So forget about the research literature, forget about some guy on the internet. Your body is saying yes or no to this food that you're eating. And that's the most honest thing. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I I talk a lot about like this self-experimentation and I think a lot of times with the internet, like we want to just have the answer, but the answer is in yourself really, right? Like the strongest evidence is your own experience that you've gone through. Um, what type of, um, I guess, what type of experience do you have you had on your on your own body? And like, where are you at? I know you mentioned you're, you don't tolerate uh, lactose and wheat very well. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, gosh, <laughs> like, so I, we, like, uh, I, I've, I've been in this world since the early nineties, really. Uh, and so in that time, I've seen lots of things come and go. I mean, the keto diets come around two or three times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I have tried all of the things, uh, uh, cause I'm very curious and I just want to see what happens with the stuff. Right. And so like, I have tried all of the things and, um, and then aging is of course a monkey wrench in the mix, right? Just when you think you have your house of cards all stacked, <laughs> aging <laughs> comes along is like, you know, nice habit you have there, shame if something were to happen to it, right? So I have tried everything, done everything, every kind of diet, everything from vegan to, well, I haven't done carnivore because that just, that one just seems a bit daft, but like, you know, really vegan to almost carnivore, uh, intermittent fasting of all different kinds, um, you know, like, like, I don't know, prioritizing certain nutrients, high fat, low fat, high carb, low carb, like just everything. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. And and where and where have you landed now? <laughs> I've I've landed into a very boring kind of place that I feel like is a very nutritionally sane place. I, you know, eat try to eat plenty of lean protein, lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, high fiber foods, whatever I can tolerate, the whole grains that I can manage, like wild rice, um, you know, some fermented foods when I can get them. Although now I'm sensitive to to like a lot of fermented like yeast and stuff like that. So yeah, like it's super boring. Um, it's maybe you could call it an ancestral style diet, you know, but now and again, I ate a handful of jelly beans or I drink a glass of scotch. So, you know, I've really, I've really arrived at this place of trying to be sane with things and not get too bent out of shape by any rules. I think that any, any real rules aside from, you know, don't eat things that are poisonous. That's a good rule. But like really having any rules about your eating, I've never seen that go to a good or useful place. So I think it's quite important for people to have a certain level of flexibility in their belief system. You know, um, like even when I was on the plane on the way home, you know, finally I got to the point where, the, you know, it was like a long, long flight, right? And by the end, they're serving me everything wheat. And I'm just like, you know what? I didn't pack enough food. I'm freaking hungry. I'm going to eat this wheat thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? So like, you know, my body didn't love it, but I, sur- you know, I was survived. able to survive a few hours longer. I <laughs> 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 didn't, didn't die of starvation in, in a few hours on a plane. Right. So like, it's really, I think important to be, to be flexible. And, but that's the place that I've arrived at just thinking through like, what are the principles that we know make a healthy diet? Well, eating mindfully, eating slowly, eating the right amount of energy for my body's needs, eating adequate protein, healthy fats, fruits and vegetables, like that's pretty much it. 
Yeah. I mean, I always try to keep it simple. I think that, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about too was like, and it's been coming up a ton is seed oils. Um, and is that something that you guys wrote up um, with your with your past with uh, Precision Nutrition is a lot of, you know, these the seed oil consumption has just like gone off the charts. And, you know, especially um, if you go to restaurants, that's all they're cooking with and they're obviously heating it, which doesn't help either. Um, what are your thoughts? And it's almost like in every food that you buy on the shelf. Um, yeah, I, thoughts, think right? it's, I mean, I think it's very tempting to demonize a single ingredient. Right. Trans fats, saturated fats, seed oil, salt, sugar, alcohol, like whatever, right? And we see that happening over and over and over. So either we demonize a single ingredient or a single food or a single type of food, or we declare a single ingredient food or type of food to be the next savior of all of us, right? The coconut oil miracle, the soy, you know, like it's hemp, right? like all of these, you know, amazing superfoods. Like, so I, I think we get into, we get into a dangerous place when we look at one single factor in a complex system and make that the problem. The problem with whatever people are eating for fast food is the fact that they're eating foods that are like embedded in a system of poor quality nutrition, right? So getting hung up on the seed oils is like, like why don't we talk about um, the fact that like, you know, North America relies so much on heavily processed convenience and takeout foods and a significant proportion of people cannot afford uh, to consume other kinds of foods or, you know, fast foods are often just an easy option for people who are, you know, can't afford a lot of money, want to take out the family for 20 bucks, uh, are working shift work and fast foods, the only thing open at three in the morning. Right. So I think that to, to get uptight about a single food or ingredient is really a luxury and, Moreover, it's not particularly correct. We have to kind of pull the camera back and look at the big picture and say, okay, you know, what are the food systems that we're looking at? We're looking at a system of highly processed, cheapened food, of which seed oils are a component, sure. Mm -hmm. But so is sugar and salt and God knows what chemicals and, you know, all this kind of other stuff. So I really am very hesitant to demonize single ingredients. In food, uh, I like to look at the whole big picture uh, and not, you know, I I don't like to make people afraid of food. I think that's, you know, be, from a behavioral change perspective, it's really not a useful approach. Uh, people get more anxious about their food, so the people that really want to make changes now now are anxious and paranoid in the supermarket, and the people that are just trying to survive. Like it's 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 not even going to register for them, right? So now you've lost an opportunity to help a whole group of people just eat better and feel better in a sane way. So like nobody's winning here, you know. And uh, you talked a little bit about undereating protein, and I'm curious because uh, I think I see this quite a bit with a lot of women in particular and men. What are your what do you what do you what are your guidelines around eating protein as far as for you know middle aged women and men and like um, you know you hear different you know point eight grams per pound of body weight or like do you have certain things that you sort of go by and then what about calories as well what are your thoughts around calories and um and sort of like minimum requirements you would say yeah okay well let's let's start with protein I mean 
one of the roles of a coach is to translate clinical suggestions or clinical recommendations into like real people things, right? So if I say to a client, listen, uh, I, I'm going to need you to go ahead and eat uh, 0.8 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. They're going to be like, what? Like, I don't <laughs> even know what that means, right? And to teach a client to eat more protein, I like to start with the food and, and again, the pattern of their whole life. Let's look at a day of your eating. And let's look at like, what are the high protein foods that are included in your normal menu? Do you know what high protein foods are? Let's look at a list of foods that are high in protein. And you tell me which ones you like, that you know how to prepare, that you will eat regularly, that you can afford. Okay, cool. Let's look at how they show up in your menu. Um, and then let's ask, um, could you be eating, in most cases, a little bit more at a lot of your meals? Like, for example, for breakfast, I see you had a muffin. Well, there's no protein there. You know, could we, is there something that you would be willing to add there? Cottage cheese, egg, you know, whatever. So that's kind of the place I start with. Um, you know, I really would not be calculating highly specific amounts of protein for anyone except someone whose job it was to make a living off their body, right? So like a pro athlete who has very specific uh, protein needs, that's when we get down to business with the calculator and start like being much more prescriptive. But for a regular person, I never talk in numbers. Um, if we talk about portion sizing, we use the hand size portion uh, guide. So it's like, okay, um, you know, fist of vegetables, palm of protein. And in a lot of people's cases, it's like, could you just have two bites more protein? Right? Mm -hmm. So most people do not need a level of precision in their lives. They need you to look at their menu and their patterns and to say, okay, could we make small adjustments here? What are you willing to do here? And, and do you even know what protein is? And could we get you shopping for protein? Like there's all these kind of logistical elements in there too. Now, in terms of what people need, we do know that women generally eat less protein uh, than they need. Uh, and as we age, we are less able to digest protein, which means we actually need more protein as we age. So if you have an older client, you know, you might be kind of pushing that a little bit more and making, you know, kind of doubling down on helping them revise their menu so that they are getting more protein. Maybe you're looking at protein shakes because, you know, a lot of older people are like, I don't feel like cooking, I live alone, or things are hard to chew. Like there's all these other factors in the mix, right? So that's where I come down on that. And so like in the back of my mind, I'm sort of looking at it, like doing a, uh, doing a kind of a, a on the napkin calculation of, is this person getting enough? But for most people, you know, there, there doesn't need to be a high level of precision, to be honest. I know that's probably like blasphemous <laughs> to all the nutritionists listening, <laughs> but, but it's really, you know, in real people terms, I think we just want to get most people eating a little bit more lean protein. Like that's, that's our job. And doing it consistently. Yeah. And then as far as like baseline calories, are there, do you have thoughts around that? Yes. Where to start? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, match it to your goals and activity level and body size, right? So um, I'm going to be very careful about dropping people down too low. I don't really see a lot of benefit there. Um, I would much rather keep their calories moderate to high and get them being more active because we know that the effects on body composition and metabolism and overall health and function are probably going to be much better if you're eating a little more, but you're more active than if you're eating significantly less, but you're inactive, right? So generally that's kind of where I lean towards. Mm -hmm. um, and people just feel better. Like people are a lot more willing, I find, 
to be more active. And I'm not talking working out all the time. I'm talking about like daily life activity. You know, I can usually talk people into being a little more daily life active if that deal comes with getting to eat a little bit more. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. like that's a that's kind of a win-win for most people. It's very rare that people are like, you know what? I hate activity. I don't want to be more active. I don't want to improve my body comp. I'm happy to just eat way less. I mean, that does happen. And it can, there's certainly cases where I could think of, um, you know, where it might be appropriate. But in general, I like to keep the calories as high as I possibly can while achieving whatever goal uh, a person has for themselves. Okay. So I know there's no exact way to find baseline calories. And some people might think they have it, but I think it's it's sort of an inexact equation. But if you know, if you have a you know 40-year-old female who's you know 120 pounds, is there like a number that comes to mind or um, you well, know, again, you know, I mean, like how active is she? What's your body comp? Are we talking about like a, you know, a, a female, I don't know, powerlifter triathlete, or are we talking about like a desk we're worker? We're talking about, uh, not, not extreme on one end or the other. I would say middle of the road as far as activity, let's say three days a week of working out. Yeah. And so what Spring. is she, what does she want to do? I mean, 120 is pretty small, right? Does, yeah. Are we just looking at maintenance or like, what are we Ma- uh, building muscle and, you know, a combination of, you know, building muscle, but also just maintaining weight, you know, not trying to put on. Yeah. So we're probably looking at between 14 to 16 times her body weight. And again, we can adjust that up or down depending. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe the lower end, depending uh, on, on how it pans out for her. Um, Somewhere around 14, 15 is usually maintenance for a lot of people. 14 to 15 Um, times your body weight. Body weight in pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm Canadian, so I use a weird me- mix of metric <laughs> and imperial. <laughs> are you are yeah. you are you living in Canada right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm Canadian. Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. So is that does that run true in general through males or females? Fourteen to sixteen uh, times body weight. Yeah, <laughs> and again, like there's so many other factors that it depends on, yeah. right? And and really, like what we do is we start there and we just go up or down depending on what effects they're getting, right? Like, are you getting are are you moving towards or away from the stated goal that you have. Um, and, and so every week we check in and sort of go, okay, like what are the data telling us? Do you need a little less? Do you need a little more? Um, you know, have you started walking the dog in the morning? Like, you know, there's all these kind of factors in the mix. What is the composition of your diet? Are you eating a a highly processed diet or a completely unprocessed diet? Like we know that that, you know, the calories you eat will not necessarily be all the calories that you absorb. Uh, is my 40 year old, uh, a former, has she, does she have a history of disordered eating, uh, and, and super slow gastric motility, which means she's like extracting every single calorie she's eating. Right. So there's again, like a lot of stuff in the mix there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd start probably around 14, 15 body weight and then just sort of see like, how's it going (laughs) Mm -hmm. over time. So there's, you know, I, I think what I'd love people to take home here is the importance of having really good tight feedback loops. First of all, being really clear on what it is you want to do, right? Like what is the point of what you're trying to accomplish here? If you're trying to do, trying to make some changes or whatever. Um, And then what's your feedback loop? Have a relatively small, tight feedback loop where you're constantly going, okay, what did I do? And what happened? What did I do? And what happened? What's the relationship between cause and effect? And it's remarkable to me how few people actually do this they just end up with results and they're like i don't know how i got here or this isn't working and i'm not really sure why you know so 
that's that's where I fall out on that. I just you know constantly am testing and checking and seeing what's happening and making small adjustments. It's like riding a bike, right? You don't just like whip the handlebars around. You do these sort of small adjustments. And you know, with clients, I'm very clear to set expectations. Here's the process. I don't know how much of anything you need. I, like I don't know how your body's going to react to anything I give you. We're starting with a very blank slate. I have some working hypotheses. They may be utter garbage, (laughs) but we'll test it and see how it goes. And over a period of weeks and months, you know, we'll figure it out together. And I think, you know, most people are kind of open to that. Do you have any like hard and fast rules? I know you talked about protein. You talked about, you know, hydration a little bit. There's anything else like eating window wise or anything, any sort of hard and fast things that you like to recommend? Um Hard and fast, but I do have some principles. One of them is for most people, eating slowly mm. is the best option. You know, helps your digestion adapt. Like it's it's remarkable how many cases of heartburn have been magically solved by mm. eating slowly. But I think you know, eating slowly is also important for appetite regulation. People are shocked at how readily their body regulates their food intake when they just slow down and pay attention. You know, so, I mean, the calorie question is often a little bit um, not even relevant for me because I get people to just slow down. And then they're like, oh, it was so weird. I just got halfway through my dinner and then I just didn't feel like eating any anymore. <laughs> I'm like, cool. But I but I enjoyed my dinner. I know like I felt really I didn't feel deprived. Right. So I typically use a much more mindful, intuitive physiology based eating approach. So that's number one. Another principle I do like, if I can get away with it, is aligning your eating with circadian rhythms. And there is evidence, and there has been for, you know, maybe 20 years, that circadian rhythm plays a role in regulating metabolism, in, you know, affecting nutrient partitioning and this kind of stuff, such that the data suggest that even if you eat the same amount of calories, if you eat them at different times, it does seem to have different effects on body composition. So, you know, for what it's worth, and a lot of, I mean, some of these studies have been done in humans. Some of them have been done in mice where you can really control the, the mouses, the mices, the (laughs) the (laughs) The mice's food intake. What is the, yeah, the food intake of the mice. There we go. (laughs) Um, You know, you can really control it in a way that you can't control it in humans and under isoenergetic conditions, um, the mice that were eating in their normal activity period, which for them is night, um, you know, seem to do better metabolically and in terms of their body composition. And I think we see this in humans as well, where we know that shift work is strongly correlated with metabolic disruption. Mm-hmm. Now, there's all kinds of things that happen on a shift, right? Like at three in the morning, nobody's making smart food decisions, right? <laughs> so there's like there's eating behavior parts of it too, but the research strongly points to the fact that there's a circadian component. So what seems to happen is when we put the bulk of people's energy intake earlier in the day, not only do they sleep better because they're not having a giant meal at night, they don't binge as much at night by the time, you know, they don't have the evening snackies as much, but it just seems to result in better body composition. So that's something I do try to like get people leaning towards, but that's not a rule. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I interviewed Dr. Don Lehman and you know he's been studying protein for 30 plus years and one of the things he mentioned was the 
the results of some studies based on the fact that people had better results if they if that first meal of the day was like a higher protein meal and um they just set the day off that much you know it was it was it was just they had better more insulin sensitivity but they they uh i think just got better results and and better body composition from that first meal being instead of having those refined carbs first thing you know mm-hmm. which you see a lot with breakfast right like muffins bagels um donuts things like that obviously those aren't great at any time of the day but I think most importantly, that first meal, setting it off right, uh, can really sort of pave the way for you know better metabolic uh, flexibility and better composition. Yeah, for sure. And and there's physiological reasons for that, and there's also behavioral reasons for that, right? So let's let's consider the the average person's day. You know, a lot of people might even be skipping breakfast, right? And then they have a cup of coffee, and then maybe they get around to something maybe mid morning. They eat a bagel, maybe. Or they wait until lunch. And then by the time they get home for dinner, they're freaking starving. And so then, of course, in the evening, it's a snack fest and they feel unable to control their hunger, right? Mm -hmm. So that's partially physiological, but also behavioral. So putting stuff earlier in the morning also sort of flips that behavioral pattern where you get to have an opportunity to eat a lot of food. I mean, not a ton, but like, you know, to feel like you had a good meal, but it also has these beautiful uh, kind of consequences later on in the day where you get to the end of the day and you're like, I don't. I don't feel like I need to hit the snack cupboard. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's really like, I, I don't have great arguments in favor of eating a lot in the evening. <laughs> I do see a lot of great arguments in terms of uh, eating more, you know, protein, healthy fats and fiber uh, and slow digesting carbohydrates earlier in the day. That just seems to be a win for most people. So that's kind yeah, of how I and, come down on it. And trying it out, I, I would recommend because actually that's, I shifted mine a little bit the way I eat. I used to, you know, fast quite a bit and 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 save my meals towards the end of the day. Um, I've added back in more of like a mid morning meal, and I find that once I get to like my last meal, dinner, like I just don't need as much. And you know, you can you know stop your eating earlier and not have to. You know, I always say you should give yourself probably at least three hours before bed. Um, mm-hmm. um, have that last meal be done. You know, at least three three months. Mo- excuse me, three hours before bed. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, What about stress Uh, strategies like around mitigating stress? um, Is this something that you sort of have implemented yourself or with clients? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we, we wrote the whole uh, sleep stress and recovery certification for precision nutrition. Right. So I spent quite a lot of time thinking very (laughs) deeply about stress. And I, I think one of the first things I would say is, like one of our jobs as coaches is simply helping our clients notice and attend to the existing level of stress that they have in their life, which for most people is crushing, right? And I know there's a lot of stuff around like, oh, stress is good for you and you don't always want to be too comfortable. But I think like the level of chronic grinding uh, discomfort and stress and pressure that the average person is living with in the industrialized world in 2023 is far above, you know, what most people realize. And so one of the first things I do with clients, if I'm, if we're doing a stress thing is like sit down and do a stress inventory and look at all of the domains of life. Cause I think that people are like, oh, well, you know, my job is stressful, but then they forget about all these other elements of their life, right? Perhaps there's environmental stress, uh, you know, like what are, what's in your home? Is there noise? I think a lot of people don't, um, 
they're not aware of their sensitivity to sensory input, mm. temperature, uh, noise, like disruption, chaos, all that kind of stuff. It, it just becomes like a white noise. And I think that in a way, a lot of neurodivergent people are like um, the sensor feelers. Like they're like the canary in the coal mine saying, oh my God, this world is way too loud and jangly. And because they experience it so acutely, you know, it's very obvious to them. But I think the rest of us are also affected by this uh, in ways that we don't realize. So we kind of do a stress inventory in a very non-judgmental way and like look at all the domains of life. And I think one of the things that happens, for example, if we talk about intermittent fasting or a kind of restrictive dieting, a lot of people in the fitness industry or who want to be fit and healthy and well have this existing load of stress in their lives, work, family, school, commuting, aging parents, whatever. Then on top of that, they stack significant nutritional changes, such as intermittent fasting, and their body is just like, no, <laughs> this is not a good plan, right? Because you know, for stress to really make us better, it has to be like, I think a lot of people forget the intermittent part of intermittent fasting, right? Mm -hmm. or, or any other stressor, right? So to make us good, a stress has to be intermittent and acute and short-lived, and we have to be able to return to baseline afterwards rather than just having the, like it be this like white noise of our lives. So the, on the plus side, though, I think the opportunity there is once you bring a lot of that stuff to your client's awareness, they start to think about like, oh, I would actually probably feel a lot better if I just made some small changes. Um, like I've been talking to a lot of middle-aged women lately writing this menopause textbook about sleep. And of course, they're all like, oh my God, my sleep is terrible, blah, blah, blah. It's got to be hormones. And I'm like, okay, on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, walk me through what happens before you go to bed. Well, I fight with my teenager. I fight with my partner. I answer late night emails. And then mm. I watch murder mysteries on, you know, things about <laughs> serial killers on Netflix, right? It's, so it's like, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. maybe we could adjust some of these negotiable stressors in your life so that, you know, you do get feeling better or at the very least not impose additional stress. So I just think that the cumulative load of stress in 2023 is far and above what most people realize it is. Most people, I don't think, realize how freaking stressed out they are all the time. Hmm. Yeah, I've had a few individuals on my podcast uh, from sort of the bioenergetic viewpoint. I don't know if you're so familiar, Dr. Ray Pete, who recently passed away, but he he was a big researcher and yeah, um, led OG OG Ray Pete. Okay, yeah, I figured you <laughs> might know who he is. Uh, so this like pro metabolic, um, where you know trying to get instead of slowing things down, and their viewpoint, obviously things like fasting done you know if you overdo something like that obviously these are stressors if you overdone exercise and thing and and fasting and you know like uh, calorie restriction you know eventually these things will catch up because it's all one big stress bucket and they could slow down you know thyroid hormones um you know uh, reproductive hormones and things like this because your body it, you sort of go into the survival mode and um and I do agree I think some people are more uh, capable of handling certain stressors than others. Um, and even things like cold exposure, right? These are all things that, you know, if you start stacking these things on top of each other, this is where you can sort of run into a problem, especially if you come from an environment that is already in a stressed out state. Um, so I do agree with you. And um, I, my viewpoint on fasting a little bit has changed um, back when I was sort of coaching more of it I was thinking, oh well, fasting can work, but like like you said, it, it 
can work for some people to some degree. And it, I think it's a great way to just build boundaries around your day. Sometimes people need that. Uh, but if they're already coming from a stressed out um, environment, they probably should just focus on other things before they think about you know, restricting anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like how you said build boundaries around your day, because I do think that the behavioral component of occasional fasting is really helpful. And I think that for a lot of people who struggle to lose weight and lose fat uh, and who maybe have a, a dieting history, one of the things a lot of them experience is that they're afraid of being hungry. So a lot of them will like eat preemptively so that they're not hungry because being hungry is very uh, uncomfortable and aversive for them, right? And so practicing fasting, even if it's like waiting half an hour Mm. or waiting an hour to eat, like helps you get comfortable with this idea that hunger is not a panic situation. You don't need to freak out. It's not an emergency. And I, and I, in a way, like I sort of fault the fitness industry a little bit for pushing this idea of starvation mode, right? Because so many people are freaked out now about starvation mode. Like unless you are deeply food insecure in North America, you're never going to experience actual starvation. And right, so like, right, you know, right. often with people, I actually discuss like starvation biology and how that works. And if you want a really good documentary about it, go and watch episodes of Alone, that TV show where people are stranded in the wilderness oh. with like 10 tools. I mean, you see starvation biology in real time and it's, I mean, quite fascinating. There's some people losing like a pound a day, right? Mm-hmm. So starvation is starvation. <laughs> um, right. But from a behavioral component, I do think occasional fasting can be really helpful for people who are just freaked out by being hungry. Uh, and in our old uh, precision nutrition coaching program, one of the things we did at the very end of the program, so like people had had a year of like building you know, their own resilience mentally, physically, we had people fast for a day, 24 hours, or as long as they felt you know, they could do it. And people were shocked. They were like, oh my God, I never thought that I could just go 24 hours and not eat. And it would just be fine. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing about fasting is that people are freaked out by it. And then they're just like, that was way less horrifying than I imagined. So I do think it's quite helpful for for teaching people about their hunger and about their body's response. And and again, sort sort of circles back to this theme of resilience. How resilient people are like we can live no problem for three weeks without food i'm not suggesting it i mean the longest recorded fast was like over 300 days like 385 days now the guy was like 600 pounds right like Mm -hmm. so you know it's not the average person's uh fast but like i think it just helps to dial down the threat level for people to show them like oh you're gonna be okay and and that helps a lot yeah that's a great point that's actually one of the probably the biggest thing i've got from I don't fast as much as I used to. I sometimes I if I feel like you know skipping a meal I will, but like uh by doing it sort of um on a everyday basis for a little while, uh probably a few years, I was pretty uh regimented about it, but like and doing some some extended fast, I think what it did make me feel is like the flexibility and the fact that if I was in a situation where <laughs> I needed to and it 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 does give you it it's restrictive, but it gives you freedom in the long haul and makes you sort of understand, well, what is true hunger and what isn't because hunger waves do come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it does in the long term give you flexibility. And I think it, you know, if you're on an airplane mm-hmm. and you know, you're on an airplane and you're delayed and you're waiting and it's two, three hours, you know, this happens, right. <laughs> and sure. you're, you're not, you don't have food. It's like, 
you have that confidence if if you've done some fasting in the past that you can be like, oh, no big deal. Yeah, I can deal with this and and go move on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. No big deal. Uh, one of my colleagues, Craig Weller, always used to say that our goal as coaches is to help people put things on the no big deal chart, right? We <laughs> want to dial down the threat level for people and get everything on the no big deal chart mm. so that everything just seems, yeah, you know, this is cool. I can deal with this. I got this. I'm cool. Tell me about the the app, this simple app uh, that you're you're in the works or that, that it's out already. Is that correct? Yeah, no, it's it's out, and I, I mean, I, I, I joined the team. You know, the the app is already in full swing, right? So I haven't had a huge influence on like shaping the app as it is. But one of my roles is, well, one of the things we were working on, we were working on, was seeing if we could gamify nutrition education. Mm-hmm. So could we do something that was like a Duolingo, but for nutrition education? So something that was fun and like a little game, and that you would learn something as you go along, but it would never feel like heavy. I mean, I think one of the challenges in the field of nutrition is that it feels so heavy and serious, right? It's like, oh, you have to do this. It's bad to do that. Whereas our our approach was like, can we just make this fun and silly and have people play and and mm. then learn stuff? So that was that was my thing. But but yeah, so the app that I'm working with is, I mean, they do intermittent fasting, right? And so one of my roles is to come in and um, create their educational programs around like helping people understand, you know, why would you fast and how do you do it and all that kind of stuff. So sort of like the the information behind the app, just like teaching people. And uh, one of the first things that I really pushed hard for when I first got there was let's shift to a much more compassionate tone of voice with people because it was kind of, it was very regimented. Like when I arrived, it was like, mm. again, lots of rules. And I was like, you know, like coming from the behavioral perspective, people need compassion and and our audience are people who probably have been trying to lose weight you know for a long time and have met with some level of frustration and so like we need to take a much more kinder gentler more compassionate less rigid approach so hopefully that's the contribution <laughs> that i'm making at this app uh, we'll we'll see and and you do have a book uh why me want to eat <laughs> i was like i read it i'm like okay uh, maybe just what's uh, what's the um, sort of the background behind this book? Yeah, so this book grew out of all the research and training I've been doing on uh, treating eating disorders. Mm. And basically, the literature on, on disordered eating falls into two categories. One is highly clinical, very dry, not interesting or useful to the average person. It's meant for clinicians, right? And then the other line of literature is like typically people's like personal stories, Right. And, and a lot of the narrative is like, I was a hot mess and I fixed myself and here's how, Mm. Um, not to be pejorative, but like, and, and so I couldn't really find anything useful in either of those in terms of really helping clients. Like I didn't, I I wanted something to refer clients to that was evidence-based and kind of reflected the most useful approach for treating and counseling um, disordered eating, but it wasn't dry and boring and clinical. So I came up with this book, which is like a workbook. It's full of swear words. Um, <laughs> and it translates the best practices in clinical literature uh, into everyday stuff that is playful. And again, lots of curse words. And, you know, it's very relatable for people. And they kind of have some laughs and some fun and some crying. <laughs> so that's 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 the goal of it. And so far, it seems to be quite successful. People really seem to like the approach. Yeah, and you and that was back in uh, 2017. 
Yeah, it's been a while. Mm, goes fast, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> well, we did we did lose those two three years to that global mm. pandemic thing, so that was all like a blur. Very true. Yes. Uh, okay, so that I'll I'll definitely leave links in the show notes for that. Um, what what one question I ask all my guests uh, towards the end is, what one tip would you give you know male female? I know this is going to be very broad, and but maybe uh, you know maybe we can touch on you know one little thing they could do to help sort of get their bodies back to what it once was, maybe five, ten, fifteen years ago. What one tip would you give that individual? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I think the I first thing I would say is on some level, we do have to accept the passage of time, right? And mm. I think actually a lot of clients really grapple with this. You know, if I'm working with a client who's 45, maybe they were an athlete in their 20s and they're remembering like, oh, I used to do this, I used to do that. And there's actually like a lot of grief and loss and, um, you know, distress around it used to be like this in my body. And now it no longer is that way. And I'm pretty freaked out by that. And I, I miss that. So, you know, with clients, I think one of the first pieces is helping them identify what is negotiable and what's not. So if you're 50, you're 50, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. like that recovery capacity that you had when you were 20 and just basically made out of like rubber and boingy, springy elastic stuff, that's not coming back. So you have to play the game differently. So, so helping them identify what you can achieve. So yes, you can absolutely set ambitious strength goals, ambitious performance goals, but these have to be goals that are relative to the, the body that you are living in right now. Uh, so yes, you can absolutely get an amazing shape. You can, you can adopt all kinds of um, health promoting habits. You can, you know, burn your life down and start again, if you want, right. In terms of your behaviors, you can, start doing any self-care, any health, any performance behavior you want. That is completely available to you. You will likely see benefits from doing that. At the same time, we also help you understand what is possible in the body that you are in. Whether it's like you have old injuries, whether your recovery ability is compromised, whether you're going through menopause, whether you've had three children and your pelvic uh, health is not what it used to be, you know. Um, so it's kind of like a double, it's like a double lens approach, right? We want to create optimism and, and say like, there's so much possibility. Like we just had the marathon in Vancouver uh, on yesterday, I guess, and it runs right past my house, Right. And there were some pretty old people, and I, I mean, not in a judgy way, but like there were some pretty old people busting it past my mm. house. Like they had to be in their 80s. It was just amazing, wow. right? Same thing in Sweden. I don't know, like old Swedish people are supposed to be like, <laughs> as you know, the 80-year-old Swede is as healthy as like a 20-year-old American or something like yeah, that, right. right? You know, so like this all, this all is available to you and it's all possibly, hey, you want to take up a new sport? Go for it, right? That's there for you. And let's be optimistic about what all your possibilities are. At the same time, let's play the game with the body that you have right now. Right. So for example, let's say that you're living in a 50-year-old body, right? We're going to weight a lot of your workout more towards warm-up, mobility, getting those tissues ready to accept loading. Like when I was in my 20s, I used to just run into the gym, squat heavy with no warm-ups. Like warm-ups are for suckers. I don't need warm-ups, right? <laughs> now I'm like 80% of my time is warm. <laughs> so, I hear you. 
you know, like we, we have to play the game with the body that we have while also at the same time feeling optimistic and identifying the opportunities. So that's, that's kind of how I would say that. And I, and I feel like phrases like the best shape of your life, I, I hesitate to use that because it's like the stage of your life that you're in is the stage of your life that you're in. And the, the person that you are, the person I am at 49 is not the person I was at 29. And I think that's a good thing, mm-hmm. right? So I don't want people to feel like, oh, we're trying to get some kind of youth back. We are more accepting the reality of what is right now while helping you do all of the things you can possibly do to you know, live your best life, whatever that looks like to you. But if we deny the reality of aging and mortality and the fact that we're all going to die and it's not going to be pretty, I kind of feel like we do people a disservice in a way. You know, um, sometimes, you know, facing their own mortality actually puts a fire under people's butts a little bit. Right? When you're in the second half of life, you're like, Ooh, I don't have a lot of time left. I got to I got to take a running or whatever it is I wanted to do. Hang gliding. The time is now. Yeah. Creates some urgency. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's never too late either. You know, I've no, seen people. It really never is. Yeah. I mean, you start later in life, but, you know, you have knowledge, you have wisdom and yeah, your body's not like it was in the 20s, but. Like you said, if you do it the right way, you can you can get results. You can build muscle when you're in your seventies. I mean, there's... absolutely, absolutely. You just have to you have to get more crafty. That's yeah. what it is. When you're younger, you have to get more crafty and wise and strategic. Like you have mm-hmm. to think more about leverage and life judo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this was great, Krista. Um, is there a website? I know we talked a little bit about, and you you're, you have the simple app uh stumptious.com yeah stumptious.com is my website and, okay. and as we were talking about it's been around since the mid 90s believe it or not <laughs> but you know i mean i'm i'm on the socials right i mean okay. facebook krista scott dixon you'll find me stumptious on instagram okay and we'll put a link to your book as well um i appreciate you coming on and um i uh i'm starstruck you know you you one of my first nutrition books uh you're on <laughs> you're, you're on there precision nutrition so they got some great certifications, and I like we said. So, if you're looking to get some certifications, um, check them out because they do give you nice books <laughs> mm-hmm. that you can always refer back to, as opposed to just you know watching videos <laughs> all day long. So, I appreciate that. Um, well, thank you, Krista, and um, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.